This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, though, we start with the housing crunch, the housing crisis in Metro Vancouver. Let's take a look at what the government is trying to do about it here in B.C. It is the densification plan here for British Columbia, and specifically Bill 44 in B.C. Now, this is the one that would replace single-family homes, right? We get rid of those. And let's replace them, let's densify, allow four housing units on a single-family lot. How about six units on one lot? How about eight units on one lot if you're right near a transit line? Okay, this is what the government wants to do. And the government saying, if municipalities don't get this done, we just might force them to do it. Now, we're getting a lot of pushback on this from some municipalities. I'll speak to Eric Woodward about it in just a moment here. Now, why is the government doing this? Well, I'll have a listen to the housing minister. I asked him about it on a recent show, Ravi Kalon. Here's what he told me. The reality we're dealing with is we've got people right now, young people, uh, working full-time jobs, living in RVs, uh, living in encampments because they can't find places to live. Yeah, yeah, people can't find places to live, living in RVs. We got to densify. We got to create more housing. Some municipalities, though, saying, hang on a second here. We we're, we're, we had a lot of planning here that you're upending on us. Eric Woodward is my guest, the mayor of Langley Township. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Eric, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks a lot for doing this. What is your main yeah. concern here about this approach here that the government's doing, forcing municipalities to densify in this way? There's a couple. I mean, there's quite a few that add up to big concerns. You know, for us, we're creating a lot of housing here in the township of Langley on a new urban land, you know, on 200 Street. That was a variety of different forms from townhouses to apartment buildings. And, you know, for us to go back and densify established existing single family neighborhoods at the same time is going to put a lot of pressure on us and other municipalities like Surrey and Maple Ridge are in that situation. And it didn't seem to recognize that, you know, different municipalities are producing housing in different ways. And just because some are, are not choosing to densify single family neighborhoods next to their transit lines or transit investments, really has nothing to do with a lot of other municipalities like mine that are, are moving forward with creating the housing the very minister, the minister is talking about. Right. So in some of these neighborhood plans that you have developed, how many people did you project would be living here in these new, these new homes? And if this forced densification goes through, how much could the population density increase here that you, didn't, that you, that you had not planned on? One thing that wasn't anticipated uh, was some of us are still creating brand new neighborhoods. And in yeah. some areas, single family densities are very appropriate. Um, you know, we don't want to line 
uh, you know, farmland in the rural areas on the other side of the urban boundary. We don't want to put a bunch of high density housing farms in some of these areas. And that wasn't really anticipated. Well, because if you have a rural urban interface, you're far away from transit infrastructure. You might be further away from recreation, you might be further away from employment. And in some cases, we want to place more people closer to that infrastructure. And so when you're further away from it and you're maybe up against the rural rural boundary, you want to have some some uh, single family homes. You know, we are uh, creating a lot of housing and, and, and by percentage, creating very few single family neighborhoods anymore, but we still want to create some where it's appropriate and that mm-hmm. the ability to do that has been taken away from us. So, well, you know, what has been missed is what about creating some new additional supply where it's appropriate and that's been taken away from us. And that's un- upended a significant amount of urban community planning here where we had a whole plan for our entire township where, you know, we're going to be putting townhomes and row homes and apartments near transit infrastructure. And some other areas will have some lower density forms where it makes sense, where we don't have the ability to put schools or as many schools as would be required otherwise. And a lot of these mm-hmm. factors and nuances that go into the community planning process have been completely un- upended. Uh, and it's not an if, Mike, it's, it's done and it's happening whether we like it or yeah. not. Well, speaking of schools, I mean, that's one example, I guess, of, of infrastructure or services that are needed when you densify these neighborhoods. You get more people, you need these services, you need schools, you need police, you need uh, sewers, you need parking, rec centers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what are the type of services that would be, if suddenly you're forced to densify, where where would the services come up short, would you say? Yeah, so the, the way the, the community planning, the neighborhood planning process works for us is when we open up an area of, say, hundreds of acres for new housing, the, again, the very housing types that the minister wants, you know, we project, the, the Township of Langley's uh, planning staff will project the amount of uh, people that would end up in this housing based on what you create, apartments or townhomes. And along with that, you'll project how many school spaces you need, how many park acreage you need. You know, what the road widths need to be, you know, how is the bike lanes going to work? And there's a lot of work that goes into it. And it starts with how many people are going to live there. And yeah. if you come along at the, after the process and say, well, yeah, you had projected 47,000, but we're going to, in Victoria, we're going to change some rules. And now developers are able to put in 115,000 um, on some unknown amount. It, it upends the entire process that would allow for a livable community to be created. Speaking to Eric Woodward, Mayor of Langley Township, how about parking? This is one that comes up a lot. It, would this produce some sort of Carmageddon? Would there be enough parking? Is that a concern for you? It's a concern in some areas. So, you know, if you have a single-family neighborhood that doesn't have rear lanes, and you're suddenly going to come along and put uh, four units on a lot or give some of the option to do that. You know, the first couple may not be a problem, but if you start creating more and more, you know, we don't have the street design. We don't have the, the sidewalk infrastructure in some of these areas where you're going to be able to provide parking on the street. And we're not yeah. allowed to require parking on this on the lot. So because, again, not everything is Vancouver. Not everything is Burnaby. And, uh, you know, we would prefer not to be doing that, not going back into some of these areas. And if we're to create a new single family subdivision, um, someone may be allowed to put a, a fourplex or a sixplex on there, but we're not allowed to require uh, what we determine to be sufficient parking requirements 
in areas where we don't have transit service. Like uh, yeah. I think Langley within Metro Vancouver, within TransLink is one of the, the least served communities, despite our growth and despite our densities. And, uh, you know, we're being asked to not be required to do parking when we simply don't have transit service yeah. that you see in Vancouver and Burnaby. So again, these nuances uh, are not taken into account. Right. And when you take a look at, speaking of Vancouver, if you take a look at some Vancouver neighborhoods where they're already densifying along these lines and we're already seeing parking wars, people fighting for on-street parking, people putting up signs or pylons to try and reserve parking spots for themselves, neighbors getting into spats over it. So I asked David Eby about this. Let me play a clip here for you, Eric, get your thoughts. So I asked the Premier... What about this parking issue? If you have all this forced densification in these neighborhoods, where are where are people going to park? Here's what he told me. He had a very interesting response, and then I'll get your thoughts. Let's listen. And we need to respond to this housing crisis proportionally. It's serious for families out there. And I know sometimes it's a pain to look for parking for a little bit longer, but to compare that to the, the strain and stress of families that, and individuals who just can't find a place to live, um, I think right. we need to just refocus. Okay, we need to refocus, and, and he says, yeah, it might be a pain to find a parking spot, but that's nothing compared to the pain we're going through here in this housing crisis. What do you think of that argument? Well, I think there's some merit to it. You know, I, I respect the Premier a lot. I respect the Minister of Housing a lot in their in their underlying desire to see more housing that more people can afford. I don't, I don't think right. anybody's arguing with that. And yeah, maybe it's frustrating to hear about parking requirements or holding up housing units if you're the Premier and you want to help people. The challenge on our side is uh, we're the ones on the ground that have to build a livable community. So it's not just about parking. It's about, is there sufficient park space? Are we going to have a rec center that's large enough? Are we going to have schools where hopefully, you know, not every child in our community, not every student in our community is in a portable. And so, you know, this is, I think it's, it's not just about parking, but the parking is symbolic of the process that's involved to ensure that we have a livable community for the projected number of residents. And, and I think they've made a very loud and clear, Mike, that that's a process that perhaps they don't value as much as some other municipalities do. And so if the province doesn't value a, a longer in-depth community planning process, I've heard that message loud and clear. We're starting to talk about how can we innovate and get community planning done more quickly and have it be more flexible in case Victoria does this to us again. And, uh, you know, if they're going to come down into the community planning level and start dictating because they're frustrated with the lack of results, I think that that's a fair motivation. But there's no lack of results in the township of Langley. There's no lack of results in the city of Surrey. And so I think we, we wish, um, you know, we had seen uh, some differentiation between different municipalities, those of us okay. that are willing to grow and are doing yeah. it right, and those of us that maybe aren't. We're talking about BC's density plan here. Could the provincial government force municipalities to densify these neighborhoods? Eric Woodward is my guest. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Rick in Delta. Hi, Rick. Go ahead. Yeah, this is... Um, I, I'm quite concerned about this on the one hand and it's tempered on the other and that is it you know we'll see this if it happens very slowly because it's going to be such an expensive process to subdivide I mean are they going to subdivide or are you going to strata title these four properties the other thing that I'm concerned about is you know you what you're going to have is investors so a guy buys a lot next door to me builds four smaller houses on it you're not going to live in it. 
He's going to rent them out. Now I've got four tenants next door. You know, no. what are the odds one's not going to be Mr. Wonderful? Um, <laughs> you know, the other thing is, and I'm sitting in front of my computer, they're, they're talking about a housing crisis. There's yeah. an affordability crisis. That's all it is. There's a ton of stuff. I'm looking well, at they want to build a high-rise here, uh, yeah. you know, it's a good mile away from me <laughs> on Scott Road. Yeah. Now, you know, a one-bedroom starts around 500000 So let me see. You put a hundred grand down, you got a $400,000 mortgage at 5%, and your payments are twenty three twenty six a month, plus taxes, plus strata fees. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, how are you going to, how is that going to create rental income or rental opportunities for people? Thank you. Well, thank you, Rick. Thank you, Rick, one, for the call. Thank you, Rick, for the call. I think you made a, some great points, uh, especially when we're talking about affordability. Like, is there, Eric Woodward, it, is there any guarantee, obviously I don't believe there is, that these homes would be affordable? I mean, are we just building a whole bunch more for homes that no one can afford anyway? Your thoughts? Yeah, I think there's a great distinction there. It's pretty clear additional supply of housing doesn't necessarily lead to greater affordability. And there's a lot of evidence to support that. There's a lot of people out there that, that continue to try to outline and explain that. And, I, and I'm hopeful that the, the current government has a plan to create some additional housing, you know, maybe partnering with municipalities that would be deemed affordable at the beginning, uh, more than what we're yeah. seeing right now, just because you increase supply. You know, it, it's important when you're, you know, 70,000 people are coming to Metro Vancouver this year because of immigration mm. yep. and uh, net migration within Canada. So if you're going to, if you're going to, you know, have this number of people coming to Metro Vancouver, you have to keep creating as much housing as you can, but doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be any more affordable. Al in Surrey. Hi, Al. Go ahead. No one wants to address the problem. We've got a gutless premier that won't tell the prime minister to do the proper immigration with the proper people coming in. That's number one. Number two, I'm in a single family development in a rancher, and I don't want a sixplex or fourplex next door to me. It is Surrey. We bought the lot based on what we were told in the beginning. Our premier of the province is a dictator, and I hate to say it, but I guess it's almost a communist where he doesn't believe (laughs) people should own houses where they want and build them how they want. Okay, okay, Al. Thank you for that. Well, uh, he has spoken up about immigration. The, the, The provincial government has alerted the feds about the unsustainable immigration numbers and whether we can absorb this many people this quickly. So he he has raised that. Uh, Eric, your thought, we got 30 seconds here. Go ahead. You can sum up here. Yeah, no, I think it's great. I really appreciate the opportunity to continue to talk about this. There's so many aspects of this. What do you want the province to do? You want them to back right off this bill? Well, the bill's done, so I don't yeah. I don't think that that's an option. So what we're going to do here is we're we're working on a plan to comply with the legislation as quickly as possible, make the best of it that we can with the uniqueness of the township of Langley and carry okay. on with our plan. We, we we ran on a new plan for our growth, and we're going to keep going. And thanks we'll for coming on. and make the best of it we can. Yeah, thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, let's talk about the political battle for power here in British Columbia. This is an election year here now in B.C. October 19th is election day in the province. This campaign has already begun here. As And be assured, everything that this NDP government does right now, Premier David Eby, just be aware, they have the eye f- fixed on retaining power in this election. Everything the government does you should frame that in your mind. Everything these opposition parties do and say right now, same thing. This is it about fighting for power in this province. This election campaign, it's not, voting day is not until the fall, but this campaign has basically already started. Now, you take a look at these opinion polls here. The NDP way ahead here. David Eby and the NDP, that big lead here. His opposition is divided and fractured now. The B.C. Conservative Party has emerged from the political wilderness here in second place. Way behind, and I mean way behind in third place, the former powerhouse party of British Columbia, B.C. United, formerly the B.C. Liberal Party, way behind in third place. I've got Steve Mossop standing by to discuss this here now. But have a listen to this. B.C. United leader Kevin Falcon and the rebranding exercise here running way, way behind. They have launched an ad campaign now to try and connect with the public, reverse these opinion polls. Let's have a listen to one of the ads here. I'm Kevin Falcon, leader of B.C. United. I believe a leader's job is simple. See a problem, solve a problem. As Minister of Transportation, I saw a need for better transit, so we built the Canada and Evergreen Lines. As a business leader, I saw a desperate need for homes, so I helped build them. And today, as a father of two, I see a province in need of solutions. I'm running for Premier because I believe that united, we will fix it. All right, that's the ad campaign. You'll probably hear a lot of this here in the next uh, few days. Let's take a look at some of the latest opinion polls from the Leger Polling Company here. Yeah, BC NDP with a big lead here. In one recent poll, 42%. BC Conservative, 25%. So a big lead for the NDP. This BC United Party, way, way down, way behind. They are at 19% in this poll. Some other recent polls showing the gap widening even more. Let's discuss now with my guest, Steve Mossop, Executive Vice President of the Leger Polling Company. Hey, Steve, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. 
Okay, Steve, what's your analysis of this? What's going on here? It looks like well, EB's there, got a big lead so here. Much Go ahead. To unpack here. You're right. Yeah. The, the opinion polls are not lying, and and not just us, but other polls that you've seen have shown the numbers, and they're they're real. I mean, the NDP is still in first place by a long shot. Our most recent December poll showed 45 up from the 42 in in December, and the Conservative Party at 24 in December. So it's uh, it's it's made tremendous leaps in in the past uh, 12 months. Uh, I want to refer though back to your comments uh, uh, about what's happening with the with the BC United Party. You know that ad campaign that they're just putting in place really is probably about a year too late because in our latest poll in December, we showed that 33 percent. Of British Columbians are not even aware that they changed their name. A third, yeah. <laughs> and and of and of United voters, twenty percent are not aware of the name change, and of Conservative voters, forty percent. So that's a pretty big number and a pretty big gap if they're not even aware of the basic fundamental of changing the name. Yeah, why do you think uh, they that is the case? Like, and as you said, it's too. It seems to be very late in the game here. They've changed. They changed his name some time ago. And now they're starting the rebranding exercise. Why are people not getting it? Like people just don't pay that much attention to it between elections, right? I mean, anecdotally, when you look at the headlines in the news and you see who's commenting as sort of the voice of the opposition, Falcon is down the list often. Uh, you know, first to know gets more airtime than he does. I'm sure if they added it up over the past year, she gets way more airtime on places like Global TV and CKNW than, than, uh, than, than Falcon himself. Yeah, for, you're talking referring to Sonia first to know the leader of the BC Green Party. Yes. It's it's almost like this BC United Party is duking it out with the, the Green Party there to try and shore up third place here. Um, let me play a clip here for you to get your thoughts. So I've talked to Falcon about this several times, and I asked him, "Do you regret changing the party name?" Here's what he told me: "Do I regret having that new name? Absolutely not." Because I actually think United is a really, really important message. Yes, it'll take time for the public to figure that out. Okay, so he says, yeah, okay, it's going to take some time for the public to figure it out, but they'll figure it out as we get closer to an election. Steve, do you think that'll be the case? Well, that's uh, that's the statement right there. It'll take time to figure it out. You know, we're one yeah. of the things that we do in our company here is we're experts in branding. When a company changes their name, the marketing dollars that they need to put behind it just to get awareness up to where it needs to be is huge. And, you know, if you add the dollars up that he's spending on his ads, it's it's pretty minimal. And he thinks that it's just going to grow somehow organically. And here we are. What is it? A year and a half later uh, or a year later. And the awareness is still really quite low, a basic fundamental awareness issue, not to mention just all the branding that goes with a, a new a new name like that. Yeah. And when we look back at the B.C. Liberal Party, the party's former name, I mean, this is a party that was in power, almost like a dynasty for a long, long time. And I asked Falcon why would you change a name that had been successful for you in the past? It didn't seem like it was a problem before. Why is the name a problem now? And here's what he told me, Stephen. I'll get your thoughts. This is Kevin Falcon. It's more about whether whether it sometimes creates genuine confusion that some in the public just genuinely think federal politics immediately. So if they see you know a BC Liberal name and they think, oh yeah, I don't vote Liberal, I vote Conservative, or whatever the case may be, then they mistakenly often vote for another party when they meant to actually vote for you know a private sector driven economy party like ours. 
Okay, so he says there was confusion with the federal Liberal Party. There were no connections between the two parties, formal connections. And, you know, certainly Justin Trudeau right now is, is not a popular figure in the country. Do you think he had a point there that maybe some negative negative bleed over from the federal Liberals was hurting the previous previously named B.C. Liberal Party? I'm not sure I buy that because we do polling on that and uh, the most recently with the Conservative Party of BC and the Conservatives federally. And really, there's a little bit of overlap, but not much. You know, voters who vote, you know, the people who actually show up the polling station really do understand it. And they're, you know, so I think that that's probably overstated. I think the thing that's missing here is probably also on a personal branding level for himself. You know, Kevin Falcon, when he first announced uh, the leadership uh, race and he won it, uh, we polled and asked British Columbians what they thought. And there was, you know, the awareness of him, despite his extensive portfolio in history, it was really low. Like people just didn't remember what he had done. And so I and I think we get that, too, on, on the leader approval ratings. It, we're just not seeing numbers that are exciting for for him. I mean, it's, you know, our 26 percent approval rating for Kevin Falcon. So the. The brand of the party is an issue, but his personal branding also stands out as a bit of a problem. What is David Eby's approval rating? Uh, approval rating of 47%, which for, a, mm. you know, it may sound low to some of your listeners, but that's about as high as it gets for a political leader. You yeah. know, at the height of the pandemic, uh, you know, his predecessor uh, received a, an approval rating of uh, 65%. And that's the highest rating we've ever seen for any politician in the country Ever, like in the history of polling. Uh, so 47% is strong, and it, it doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, when people hear that number, you think, oh, only 47%, you might think, oh, that's not a great rating. That is actually a really <laughs> a really good rating for a politician. Yeah. So, And he's opened up a large, a large gap. The interesting thing I find on that is when you drill down on some of the other uh, issues pollings that you guys do and other companies do, whether it's management of the healthcare system, the housing crisis we got here, the overdose death crisis in the province. I mean, we got a lot of problems here in BC and many people will give low grades to the government's management a lot of these files. It does not seem to be hurting EB though when it comes to his personal appeal to voters and the voting intentions of the public, right? Why is that? No, because the, the issues that are in the province, you know, start with housing prices, affordability is number one. We got inflation and interest rates, then healthcare is a, is a solid number three. He actually pulls pretty well on those numbers, maybe with the exception of housing prices. He pulls pretty well on healthcare, the environment, uh, and crime and public safety, whereas uh, the United Party really. Uh, it changes to mostly economic focus. And this is traditional sort of centrist or right wing voters tend to focus on economy deficits. And and that's uh, they're not seen as standing out in that category. Speaking of Steve Mossop, Lege from the Leger Polling Company. All right, let's talk about this B.C. Conservative Party here for a minute, Steve, because this is the other big story here, how this party has come out of the wilderness, political wilderness here in a, in a pretty solid second spot in every poll that we see now. And this is a party that has been around forever in British Columbia, but it always been in the on the fringes here for a long, long time. Suddenly... It's in second place. Let's listen to John Rustad here, the leader of the B.C. Conservatives. Kevin Falcon booted him out of his party. So he went over and took over the B.C. Conservative Party, and he's doing a lot of damage <laughs> with it, too. Let's have a listen to Rustad here. He's talking to me on an earlier show. Let's listen. 
what David Eby and the BC NDP are worried about is that we're challenging them for government. I don't think that an early election is out of the question because I think he is worried that if he waits too long, we will be forming government after the next election in 2024. Okay, well, every party says that they're surging and they're going to form government, but what, what's going on here, Steve? Like, where, why is this party surge the way it has, do you think? I think more than just the, the party itself, it's a, it's a movement to the right that we're seeing in Canada. We've seen, you've seen our polls, uh, you know, tolerance levels towards immigration, uh, towards deficits. You know, the, the tide has really started to shift. And, and we just released a poll yesterday that showed that the Conservatives in Canada, uh, Party of Canada and Polyev's crew have, have increased their lead to now 40%. Uh, so it's gone up like three or four points since our last poll. And the Liberals continue to plummet federally. So I think there is a spinoff that the policies that the BC United Party stand for are something that people are gravitating to at a federal level. And they're kind of riding the wave of their policy uh, followers versus maybe Rustad himself or, or the party itself. Yeah, is there some positive bleed-over effect from Polyev surge federally too? Like that name, just the Conservative Party name or brand is on a roll in Canada. And is that just sort of a natural kind of the, the provincial party here is just going along in the wake here and getting some benefit from that? It, it really is. And uh, when we break down the, the federal numbers in British Columbia, uh, the Conservatives are in the lead by a long shot. It's even higher than the 40%. I don't have the number right in front of me, but they so they are benefiting from that tide, if you will. Uh, and the, the the name itself, you know, Rustad doesn't have a, a huge approval rating. And in fact, it's kind of neutral. Uh, it's not massively increasing. So they're really riding that wave of voter sentiment that is the policies of the right are becoming more appealing to voters. Yeah. Now, if things stay the way they are here, when you take a look at these polling numbers, NDP with a big lead, the opposition splintered and divided here, this BC United Party going down, this what adds up to what, Steve, like a huge majority for the NDP if, if these voting intentions hold? until election day it seems so you know what happens yeah. and, you, and you've seen this story before many times in politics that what's happening here is the 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 right vote is split we've got you know yes the conservatives are rising but the united party still has a, a fairly you know sizable number of voters behind them and when it comes to election day you see riding by riding that it could mean a landslide victory for the ndp if things hold up now anything can happen yes but Typically in these numbers, when you have uh, a, a, a segment like that where it's divided, you can have uh, an exceptional landslide happen with yeah. if the numbers keep going the way they are. Steve, thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Let's talk now about the right to repair movement. I find this a super interesting topic, and I think it's one that just about everybody can relate to because you've heard the old saying, they don't make them like they used to. And it's so true with so many products, especially household appliances. How many of us have bought a, a dishwasher or a refrigerator or a washer dryer? Or maybe even a smaller appliance like an, an electric kettle, which I've cycled through a bunch recently. They just break down. You got to replace them. 
This just seems to be happening more and more. And it can be difficult to repair this stuff if you want to try and fix it yourself or maybe hire an independent technician to fix it for you. If you can't access the parts, you can't take the thing apart. Got Gay Gordon Byrne standing by to discuss from the Repair Association. First, have a listen to this report here now. Global News reporter Andrewa. You'll also hear from plumber Chris Bomer. Let's have a listen. As a journeyman plumber, Chris Bomer says he's become increasingly frustrated with the number of trips he's making to the recycling depot hauling away broken down appliances that can't be fixed. Not very good for the environment, right? Not very good for us in general. Chris says he believes appliances aren't as durable as they used to be and says it's unacceptable and there needs to be a solution. If we had some sort of legislation forcing them to make the appliances not disposable, repairable instead. Okay, good idea. Get some legislation going. And in Canada, there is a bill in front of the Canadian Senate. It's the right to repair bill in Canada. Other jurisdictions have done the same thing. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Gay Gordon Byrne, Executive Director of the Repair Association, one of the leaders of the right to repair movement. Gay, thank you for coming on today. Hey, great to talk to you. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it a lot, and I, I love your own personal story. Could you just touch briefly on that? Because you got involved in this. You were so passionate about this Right to Repair Association because you, you've always been someone who sort of likes to repair stuff, right? And in your family, is that right? Oh, totally. Um, I didn't know that you couldn't repair stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Every, everything in the house I grew up in was repaired, often. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think my parents ever bought anything new. To tell you the truth, it was—I think they even used secondhand furniture. So I'm—I'm I'm all about repair. Right. So you grew up in a in a family. I guess people were pretty handy. They were able to fix stuff. Not everybody can fix stuff, but it should—it shouldn't be that hard, right? Um, no, it really isn't that hard. Most of the products that we used to buy came with instructions, yeah. and if they didn't come with instructions, you could go to the library and borrow instructions. Um, you know, if it's manufactured, somebody had their hands on it and shouldn't be too terribly hard for somebody else to put their hands on it and, and fix something. Okay, so let's talk about right to repair. And can you describe the problem here, Gay? Like, what is the issue here? Like, if something breaks, are consumers finding that it's often difficult to repair the stuff? Oh, uh, consumers are totally helpless. And I include myself in that. Um, it's not that we don't want to fix our stuff, it's that we don't have the practical options of fixing our stuff because manufacturers have figured out, probably going back 15, 20 years, that if they make repair difficult, they can herd you into the showroom and make you buy a replacement. Yeah. And so all they have to do to make that happen is to do one of five things. They don't have to do all five, just one. Um, one is they can decide they're no longer going to print and sell or publish manuals, just like the ones we used to get in the library. They can decide they're not gonna sell parts, they can decide not to sell tools, they can decide not to let you download the firmware, uh, the software that's already on whatever the product is so that you can use it. Um, and then they can make life, life difficult entirely by hiding it all behind a paywall. Yeah. So, we're, yeah. Kind of, we're kind of in a bad spot. Yeah, for, for sure. And a lot of people may be familiar with this term planned obsolescence. It, it almost seems like these products are almost 
designed to fail, like the manufacturer wants them to break, so you buy a new one? Do you think that's what's going on? Is it that is it that deliberate a strategy? Um, I'll be kind and say <laughs> that's not always deliberate. Some people, I think it's quite deliberate. But the incentive for the manufacturers to sell more. So they don't have an incentive to make their products easier to fix or less expensive to fix because it interferes with their, they want to sell more. Consumers want to buy less and manufacturers want to sell more. So there's a real conflict there. And that's what the legislation is intended to do is to make sure that the conflict heads over in our direction so that yeah. we have the opportunity. What was it like in, in, in the past, in the old days, like when you could actually could fix yourself? Like, it seems to me that appliances, uh, older appliances just seem to last longer. I mean, probably everyone has got a story. I know our family does of an older stove or refrigerator that just kept going and going and going and lasted forever. We've got a dryer, a clothes dryer in our laundry room that's got to be at least 30 years old or more. And it's, it's still working great, but it just seems like the newer stuff just doesn't last like the old stuff used to. Is that fair to say? Oh, it's totally true. Um, and yeah. even the home appliance manufacturing industry will say they don't make them like they used to. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It, it, it's a twofold problem. One is that if you put electronics in something that never had electronics before, you're now really dealing with the failure profile of a computer and not of a, of a dryer or a refrigerator. So you can build a dryer or a refrigerator that's basically built like a brick. Um, it has very little technology. There's very little that can break. They'll use metal parts instead of plastic. And that's why the modern stuff is so delicate by comparison. It's made with a bunch of electronics that are glued together. Um, the gears are plastic. There's no metal. They're made, they're truly made to break. Now, is that planned obsolescence? Well, it's certainly cheaper for the manufacturer. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a form of planned obsolescence, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I think so, too. And speaking of gluing stuff together, is that another barrier to fixing stuff? Like, if stuff is put together with super glue and it's difficult to take apart, that makes it difficult to fix, right? That's impossible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's truly impossible. <laughs> Yeah, 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 you can't open something to even replace a battery without destroying it. Um, you know, the thing is going to live as long as the battery, and then it's all waste. It's all garbage. Right. And then you mentioned also tools. And could there be, and I've, I've heard this from people on this issue in the past, that sometimes you'll get equipment or appliances that even if you want to fix it, you have to have a special tool in order to, in order to fix something, right? Is that another barrier? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not as big a barrier. Um, there's companies that are making like physical screwdriver tips that can just about pry anything open. Um, but there's really no good reason for that. They might as well just give you a, if it's that weird and that special, you know, they could do what Ikea does and it shows up with a little, you know, you buy the bookshelf and it comes with a screwdriver bit. You know, what's so difficult about that? Yeah, It's the glue. It's really the glue that's the problem. Speaking to Gay Gordon Byrne, Executive Director of the Repair Association. She's one of the leaders of the Right to Repair movement. And I guess in some ways, if you think about YouTube, I know lots of people who can go on YouTube and watch repair videos. That's kind of revolutionized repair. I, I even actually fixed something 
uh, a really old stove that had an element break in it. And I went on YouTube and I was able to follow along in a YouTube video and actually replace uh, a broken element on a very, very old stove. Now, this was a super simple stove, Gay. So I'm, I, if it was a newer one, a newer model, I doubt I could have fixed it. But the older one seemed to be more fixable. But would you say, like, the dawn of YouTube, has that created more opportunities for people to fix stuff, even if they don't have a repair manual? Uh, I love YouTube. I Before I get my hands dirty in anything, I always look at YouTube to see what I'm what I might be up against. But the things that once you see how it's done, you still have some hurdles. You've got to be able to buy that spare part. Now, the old ones, that's not so hard. But if it's got electronics in it and the manufacturer says, I ran out of that part, well, you're kind of unable to fix your stove. Yeah. Even if you had this, even if you saw it was the simplest thing in the world and you wanted to do it yourself. It, you've got to be able to get that part. And then then you find the hurdle that we call parts pairing, which is that you get the part, you put it in, and the part says, I'm not, you know, my part, this part isn't recognized by the main board. And the solution for that is you now have to call the technician from the manufacturer to come in and wave his magic wand and say, okay, now it can talk to you. Yeah. It's just this absurdities. I have a friend that, that replaced a thermostat in a reasonably late model refrigerator and he couldn't turn it on because the part needed this blessing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh man. They, they've really part. got this. They've really got this figured out. Um, oh, <laughs> so the right, the right to repair movement here. So we have this bill gay in the Canadian Senate here um, that would bring in a right to repair law in Canada if it goes through Bill C-244. And how do, how do these things typically work? Like it would require the manufacturers to make parts and, and repair manuals available? Is that, is that how it works? Yeah, um, the way we've done it in the U.S., and I haven't read S-244, so I'm not sure it's identical. But yeah. what we've been able to do here is to require that manufacturers sell the same parts and tools and manuals, well, actually manuals should be free, but um, that they've already built that are only being offered to their authorized repair providers. So it's really more of a competition approach so that somebody that's um, not an authorized provider, including you as the owner, can get the same information. So there's no secrets. This isn't anything that's not already out in the wild. It's out there. It's just being provided only on a very limited basis. And how many, this is a final question for you, Gay, what, have a lot of countries and states and other jurisdictions adopted these type of laws? Like, is this catching on? Oh, definitely catching on. Actually, in some cases, the EU is a bit ahead of us. Um, you probably know that from the home appliance questions that you're asking. They have a regulation in the EU that says um, appliance manufacturers have to make stuff that's serviceable with, I think they call them commonly available tools, and can't be held together with adhesives. So there's there's progress in all sorts of places. Yeah, I think you're doing great work on this file. Thank you for coming on to talk about it today. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.